John shook his hand. He, he told Joe Biden, he said, the science you're using for energy and climate change is just wrong. And Joe Biden got angry. He says, you're just spouting right-wing science. So Joe Biden is lecturing current Nobel laureate in physics about science. My guest today is Gregory Wrightstone. I'm a geologist, uh, got a master's in geology from West Virginia University. Uh, uh, I was a co-author of the first comprehensive uh, peer-reviewed study on the Marcellus Shale of the eastern United States, which turns out it's the largest natural gas field on Earth by far. Uh, and then I, I, in 2015, I started getting very interested in climate change. Some of the things we were being told I knew as a geologist were just wrong. And so my first book, Inconvenient Facts, was really the result of my exploration for climate change truth. Uh, it, it flowed out of that. And the second book that I've just published just last week, uh, A Very Convenient Warming, it, I've evolved in the CO2 coalition also has evolved from stating it's, it's more than just there is no climate crisis. There isn't. But not only is there no climate crisis, by almost every metric we look at, Earth's ecosystems are thriving and prospering and humanity is benefiting from warming and more CO2. And it's completely a stark contrast to what we hear every day in the media and what we're preached to by uh, NOAA and NASA and the UN. Um, they don't recognize the huge benefits that are accruing to humanity and the human conditions improving because of this. And we should, the word I use a lot, Tom, is celebrate. We should celebrate the, uh, the benefits that we're seeing. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's great. I think your message is fantastic. Let's talk about the CO2 coalition itself. That it's uh, it was founded in 20, uh, 2015, right? And uh, was it founded by Will Happer? Yeah, Will, Will Happer. At the very first meeting, there were a number of notables there, Roger Cohen, Will Happer. Um, actually, Mark Mills was part of that group, Alex Epstein, although he never uh, ended up joining, uh, being part of the, the continuing effort. But it was, it was a young Alex Epstein at that time. He's, of course, he's not old now. Uh, so it's uh, uh, it was uh, it's evolved. Uh, when I I took over in uh, the end of 2020, uh, and Steve Malloy, who you know very well, uh, he, when I took over, he told me, "Greg, this is a diamond in the rough because we had so many top scientists that were publishing. We were doing white papers, but I saw the real need here for." It doesn't do any good if you if you produce scientific, detailed white papers that very few people read. And so I wanted to combine the scientific merits of our scientists and really uh, put that make it approachable and readable by the general non-scientific population. And we've done that. Um, actually, we've just seen explosive growth uh, over the last three years uh, from two employees when I started. We now have 11 because uh, when I took over, we we I took a look and I had a, a lot of goals that I wanted to accomplish. But we couldn't do it with two employees. And so we've been gradually increasing our staff. Um, it was a stressful time because uh, there were so many things that we wanted to accomplish. We just didn't have the time to do it. And now, uh, you know, we've got two research and science associates in Vijay Jayaraj uh, and Byron Sapoyan. Uh, Vijay's moved from India to Scotland. Uh, he's a prolific writer. He writes a lot about 
climate colonialism. And he's got a new book that I'm editing right now that's that will be coming out in the next couple of months. Uh, so it's been an exciting time for us. Uh, in fact, our our donors have grown from we only we had 133 donors. Uh, we're now up over 8,600 donors. People are responding. These are individuals, just like you and the people listening, and they're responding to our message. And that's why I'm able to hire these people. I'm looking for two more to do even more than what we're doing. Uh, people are just responding tremendously um, to our message and our outreach. As I was just saying before we hit record, uh, I spent some time this morning clicking around on the CO2 Coalition website, and I think uh, us climate realists and everybody should spend more time doing that because there's so much good content out there, just loaded with great content. Yeah, yeah and we're doing more. You know, last year we took on a education as our education initiative and launched that. We have 15 people on this committee, most of them PhDs. And, and what these these people have done is amazing. They've put together just wonderful comic books. So I put I brought on to staff. We have a full-time artist that uh, Tiago Hellinger that lives in Brazil. Uh, he's wonderful. So he the books are done manga style. The videos he's creating are are anime. Uh, and they're they're fun and entertaining, but they're also teaching science. And We've also, to go along with them, Dr. Sharon Camp, again, another employee. She's our senior education advisor. She's got a PhD in uh, analytic chemistry, uh, and she does the lesson plans for us. We've got, that's a new initiative. We just launched another, signed a contract for uh, a series of 25 uh, videos that will be fairly short, on the three to four minute range. We've just, uh, we're calling it the Climate Chronicles. Uh, and you can go on the website and find the Climate Chronicles. The very first one we have up there is on heat waves, uh, very professionally done uh, by one of our members. It's, it's a company formed by one of our members, Mike Thompson. Uh, his partner is actually a 14-time Emmy-nominated uh, producer of films. Uh, he's won seven Emmys. These are high-quality professional videos uh, and we're we're gonna have a whole series of these. We've, again, we've got we've signed a contract to do the first five of twenty five uh, videos. So we're continually expanding our reach, expanding our outreach, uh, and it's it's uh, it's been quite a an honor leading this organization. I, I feel motivated every day. Uh, and come in here and our staff is pumped up and they're ready to go because they, they come to me and they say, we're, you know, I love working here. We're doing something good for the planet. We're actually making a difference. And that's, it's hard to find a job like that, uh, that you not only uh, enjoy, but you're, you're making a difference. And so this, it's, it's been quite a, it's been quite a wild ride for the last three years. So one addition since the last time you were on this podcast is you got John Clauser on your board of directors, right? Do you want to talk about him a bit? Yeah, John was, uh, uh, he was brought to our attention from uh, Dr. James Emstrom from uh, California, who's probably the top uh, scientist dealing with PM 2.5, and that's a particulate matter, uh, less than 2.5 microns. And it's, he 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 conclusively states there it's not a problem it's not dangerous and they're trying to overregulate just about everything uh, and he introduced us to John Clauser uh, who was uh, given the get you know, given he was 
honored with the Nobel Prize last year, earlier in March of this year. He went, received the prize. Uh, and then he was honored. This is in physics, by the way. It was on the, what he, the research on was called quantum entanglement. It's, uh, according, Einstein called it spooky reactions at a distance. And Einstein, it turned out that John Clauser was right and Albert Einstein was wrong in this regard. And John Clauser proved it. Um, and John was invited to, to the White House, I believe, in May of this year. And afterwards, uh, Joe Biden honored him. Afterwards, John shook his hand. He, he told uh, Joe Biden, he said, the science you're using for energy and climate change is just wrong. And Joe Biden got angry. He says, you're just spouting right-wing science. So Joe Biden is lecturing current Nobel laureate in physics about science. Um, I'm not sure how that would how that ends up, but uh, he's he's unafraid. He's unafraid. He went to Korea to the Korea Quantum Physics Conference not long after that. Uh, he stated loudly and proudly that there is no climate crisis. Uh, uh, I've been in contact with him. He's putting a presentation together, and I think you'll be invited to it. It'll be coming up in the next couple of weeks uh, where we get an all-members meeting of the coalition members. We're now more than 150 members, all of them esteemed scientists or notable uh, climate skeptics like yourself. And uh, so we'll be having that. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a neat Zoom call where you have all these world-renowned experts from around the world, Peter Ridd on top bar Great Barrier Reef expert. Uh, John Clauser, Nobel laureate in physics, uh, Will Happer again, emeritus professor of physics from Princeton. Uh, so, uh, you know, we get quite the brain power when we have an all CO2 coalition members meeting. I do think it's pretty funny that, uh, like on Twitter, you constantly hear that it's basic physics and so simple that a child can understand it. I think Michael Mann may have even said that a monkey could understand it. There's some quote about that. Completely crazy. Yeah, it's in, in in my book, I I, I took a, a formula that was in one of the papers by William Wingard and Happel. It's about yay long. It's got symbols that I have no idea what they mean. And you can't it, it was it was this long. It was on uh on, on the physics of warming and, and interaction. And I, I just said I, I, I admit it, I have no idea about watts per meter squared. I'm a geologist. Uh, I rely on uh, people I trust that know physics like Will Happer, Richard Lindzen, Steve Koonin, uh, uh, the true physicist, John Clauser. Uh, and, and I trust what they're telling me is right. And what they tell me is that the warming effect of CO2, equilibrium climate sensitivity, that is, uh, how much warming can we expect? It's called ECS. How much warming can we expect for a doubling of CO2? So today we're at 420 parts per million is the ambient CO2 levels in the atmosphere, which is 50% more than it was at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, but we're 420 today. What warming can we expect if we double CO2 from 420 to 840? Um, according to the IPCC, uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, of which, just oh, by the way, I was accepted as an expert reviewer for the last one, the AR6. 
Uh, but they, they'll tell you it's somewhere around, uh, we double CO2, it'll be maybe four and a half degrees Celsius of warming, which is quite a bit of warming. Uh, the physicists here that I trust tell me it's it's definitely less than 1.5 and quite likely less than 1.0 Celsius of warming uh, for, for a doubling of CO2. And what we've seen, uh, what the facts tell us is we've seen nothing but benefits from the combination of warming and more CO2. By almost every metric we look at, we said before, ecosystems are thriving and prospering and humanity is benefiting. Yeah, I think your book makes a good point of that, that we're not just not guessing about, oh, is warmer better or not? Because you go in great detail looking back at history. We've had a lot of cold periods. We've had a lot of warm periods. And we know how humans did in those periods. And the warmer was better every time so far, correct? Oh, it was. And and that's one of the things I, I just love is talking about the, the strong relationship between human history and climate history. And we find, just like you say, these really warm periods and bear in mind they used to be called climate optima by by people that studied these things they don't use that terminology before they called them climate optima because life was good food was bountiful ecosystems thrived uh, but you can't call warm periods optima if you want to try and convince people that that warmer is horrific and colder is better uh, and what, what's interesting too what i liked was uh, michael mann uh, was once asked, you know, what's what's the ideal temperature for planet Earth? And he said, well, that's easy. It's before we it was the temperatures before we started adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. That would have been well, it would put us squarely in the middle of the horrific Little Ice Age. And this was a period, uh, perhaps a third of, of the population of the Earth perished during that time. Half the population of Iceland perished. Uh, in fact. Uh, the Danish authorities who controlled Iceland that, at that time proposed actually abandoning the entire island nation and bringing them back. And and they almost did. It was seriously because it was so bad. Crops were failing. The volcano Hecla uh, it, it devastated parts of Iceland. And it also led to worldwide famines. The, the, the big volcanoes on Iceland, when they three times they've gone off in the last several thousand years. And each time, it affected global agriculture production significantly, and for the worse. Uh, so, uh, the, the, so Michael Mann tells us that's the temperature that we best for Earth, but it just wasn't. It's just not so. Uh, I mean, they, they did witch hunts in New England and in Europe during that time because they blamed weather causing witches for a terrible crop harvest, and they, you know, they they need just like today. Uh, when something's going wrong, you look around for somebody to blame. And because, you know, if the guy in front of you stops too suddenly in your car and you don't see it, you'll slam into, you know, you're blaming on the guy in front of you with your car when it's actually your fault. Or maybe there's nobody's fault for this when we have this cold period. But nonetheless, we saw that the cold of the Little Ice Age was associated with, again, crop failure, famine, and pestilence. And uh, it was it was not a very good time. Uh, also, we can look at what's more dangerous, cold or heat. Uh, the largest study of its kind was Antonio Gasparini. He looked at 74 million temperature-related deaths, and he found that 20 times as many people die 
due to cold or due to cold as due to heat. Another study was 15 times as many. Nonetheless, it's a lot more people died because of cold-related as to heat-related deaths. Um, and I also, as a scientist, I found it uh, fascinating. The most recent study that was done, uh, it concluded there were 10 times as many people killed due to cold as due to heat. Um, but what they found in this study, too, which I thought was fascinating, it turns out that heat-related deaths that heat waves seem to, they call it a culling effect, that it's those that are almost ready to die succumb easily to heat. It's not so with cold. And so actually there was what they called a mortality window several months after a heat wave where it claimed people. And so actually mortality, what we had was people died during the heat wave because of the heat, would have likely died over the next several months. And so actually there was a drop in mortality after the heat wave. And I found that was that was just I found that fascinating. Uh, you don't see that with the cold-related deaths because uh, cold is it seems to be an equal opportunity uh, grim reaper. Uh, so the cold brings, and of course, in the COVID era, we know that cold is associated with things like uh, COVID, influenza, and we saw that in the other periods, the the dark ages and the little ice age with uh, during the cold diseases like the black like the plague and the black death and other things uh, thrived because it was cold and people gathered together uh, in their homes and cabins so one point you made in your book that i think is an important one about those uh, witch trials uh, back in the uh, the salem days or whatever that it it was uh, harvard educated people a lot of people educated at harvard the elites they believed in the witch thing I, that's amazing. I think uh, history is repeating here that a lot of educated people believe in this scam and uh, ordinary people are harder to fool. It is. And uh, yeah, Will Happer uh, likes to point that out as well. Will is our chairman, uh, the physicist I lean on most. Uh, and he, he points that out. And he also likes to do like I did was we associate the witch hunts of the Little Ice Ages, the Little Ice Age to what are the, the witch hunts that are going on now. Uh, they're saying that we're being punished, if you'll forgive me, by our sins of emission uh, of CO2, and, and it's leading to uh, horrible death, crop failure, increasing heat waves, expanding deserts. You know, we can go on and on, uh, but that's just not true. We, we find these things that they're telling us that are getting worse are actually getting better. Um, and we, we find that this, the deserts are actually shrinking. The, the Sahara Desert, uh, 200,000 square kilometers of the Sahel, the southern Sahara, have turned from desert into lush grassland and farmland. Uh, we're seeing that globally fires are in decline, not expanding. Uh, even in Canada, yeah, we had a, there was a bad fire season in Canada this spring. We had, it happened to blow the smoke across the United States. These things occur uh, Every single year in Canada, and they start in the late spring, uh, which is a little bit different from our Western fires that are typically uh, in uh, late summer and early fall, where it's the dry heat that dries them out. But in Canada, uh, it's the snow melt that exposes all the, the grasses and dries them out. And it's and it's the, the top fire season in Canada is actually in May, uh, which is which I found to be interesting. And the Canadian Fire Service actually documents 
looking over 40 years of data that fires are in decline in Canada. They're not increasing. Uh, and so this is, again, we, I like, when you look dispassionately at the science, uh, they always say follow the science, but that's not what the Biden administration is doing. That's not what uh, people pushing that zero are doing. In fact, uh, you'll be interested. I'll be going to traveling to Wyoming. It'll, we're taking a, uh, I'll be traveling there in two weeks with Dr. Happer and uh, Dr. Byron Sapoyan is our science and research associate. Uh, we've just, I'm just right now uh, gotten the edits back. We've got a, an extensive report on Wyoming and climate. And we took a look at the Cowboy State and what's actually going on. This is part of our ongoing regional and state studies. Uh, Montana will be next, followed by Texas. We've already done Pennsylvania, uh, Virginia, and the Midwest. Um, but we find it's it's really, really interesting that there's been an, an yes, has there been an increase in temperature in Wyoming? Yes, uh, about 1.2 degrees, but it's fascinating. Looking at the hot temperatures, they haven't been increasing. They actually peaked in the uh, many, many decades ago, but the it's the cold nighttime temperatures that are increasing. So the, the very coldest temperature, are they're warming up significantly. That's a good thing. That's a really, really, really good thing, especially for agriculture. Uh, we're seeing that growing seasons are lengthening. If you look, going back to 1900, we've documented in the book that the growing season in the continental United States has increased more than two weeks. Uh, so what's that it means that we grow more crops, feed more people, killing frosts stop earlier in the spring and arrive later in the fall. Um, and you get this, this warming turbocharged by uh, increasing CO2, the CO2 fertilization effect uh, is, is turbocharging plant growth. And then on top of that, uh, we're using nitrogen fertilizer, nitrogenous fertilizers that are derived from fossil fuels. So we get all these, those three things are the main drivers of increasing agricultural output. It's warming, more CO2, and the use of nitrogen fertilizers. And they want to make all of those, the, the people promoting this net zero, they want to get rid of nitrogen fertilizers. They want to block the sun using geoengineering, and they want to reduce hugely beneficial CO2 levels. Uh, all of this uh, Dr. Happer and Lenzen in a recent paper came out. They, they predicted there would be millions of people that die due to famine if they went, if they continued and actually furthered their proposals. And we saw what happened in Sri Lanka, which was a, uh, an agricultural-based economy. Uh, when the president of Sri Lanka, President Rajapaksa, uh, actually, he, he banned nitrogen fertilizer. And the entire agricultural system collapsed within nine months. Uh, and that just was a stark reality. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I, I, I like Sri Lanka. I was, uh, I was hired just as an, an offside here uh, back in 1984. I was hired to, to go to Sri Lanka to explore for star sapphires, uh, which we were going to look for there. They had found someone up on a plantation that was owned by the President Rajapaksa's niece uh, that got run out on a rail, and uh, uh, but uh, we never did make it there. But uh, Sri Lanka is just a case study what happens if you if you go down the road of net zero and ban things like nitrogen fertilizer. You did say he actually had to flee the country, right? 
Oh yeah. yeah. They 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 assaulted, they took over the presidential palace and he barely got out uh with his skin skin intact. He fled to India. Uh and so yeah, it was it was they're back to using nitrogen fertilizer. Um of course they're best known for their their tea and also their star sapphires. And just to get another side note, uh, if you look if you uh, if if your wife loves the blue the deep blue sapphires of a star sapphire, uh, those come those are called Burmese blue sapphires. They're beautiful. Uh, the Sri Lankan sapphires are called Sri Lankan grays. They, they're just a not a very attractive gray color. But if you heat them up in a crucible, they turn a brilliant blue, and they're indistinguishable from the Burmese blues. Uh, so most of the sapphires. Uh, originated from these this kind of an ugly gray sapphire, and then were heat treated later. And there's no there's there's no telling between the two. I did not know any of you that. You never thought we would talk about <laughs> sapphires on this interview, but there we are. I wonder how they heat them up. Probably not using solar energy, right? And uh, no, I don't think so. I'm not. Sure. I don't know that. I don't know, but they do heat them up. So I was going to ask uh, in the geology world. Uh, I don't know if you're still much connected with that or. Do you see a lot of uh, talk about climate? Uh, I would guess that they, since they know the history of of uh, warm and cold periods, that they're not all in on the climate scam? Yeah, but a lot of these geological societies have been taken over by the woke crowd that are pushing uh, net, the, the largest society promoting petroleum geologists is the American Association of Petroleum Geologists, uh, and their leadership was taken over uh, over the last several years by the um, people promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, environmental, social, and governance, ESG. Um, they started pushing, instead of oil and gas exploration, they started pushing uh, carbon capture and sequestration uh, as as what we should be doing with our organization. And I, boy, I'm, we're fighting, I'm fighting back. Um, we're talking about me being a one of the keynote speakers for their annual convention. We'll see if that actually happens, but we will be at that convention as an exhibitor with our, with our big pull-up banner and signs that say, that say, we love CO2 and so should you. We proudly proclaim the benefits of more carbon dioxide. Um, I don't think we'll get kicked out of that convention, although we were kicked out uh, in March of this year by the National Science Teaching Association at their annual meeting, they had 14,000 people in attendance. We had paid for a double booth. And uh, the second day we were there, and we were warmly welcomed with our educational materials. We distributed, had just distributed the last of our lesson plans and the books that we bought free to the teachers. And they came down and they said that we had to remove our materials. Uh, it was called Challenging the NSTAs a position statement on climate change, where we took what they promote for climate change and just destroyed it. It just showed what they're actually about, the, the National Science Teaching Association and the other groups promoting education in America. They promote groupthink and indoctrination of the students into this climate cult. Uh, they absolutely censor any science that goes against that. Uh, that's not the scientific method. That's not how uh, critical thinking should be developed. So we did this and they didn't like it. Uh, they, they, they came down with three security, armed security and said, you need to leave. 
And so I'm there. I we're, we had the only group there that had some really distinguished scientists. I had three, uh, three women ladies. Not that it matters what their gender is, but they were uh, they were female. All had PhDs. Uh, one was top nanotechnology expert in in, in the world, uh, and they're booting us out because they didn't like our science. And we left with our heads held high. Um, it was really a, a a dark stain on that organization. And it was uh, uh, we've gone to more education conferences. We're planning. We're not going to get back into that one again. They won't allow us. I'm sure. Uh, I might just apply just to tweak them. But uh, uh, we're we're looking and and looking for homeschools groups. We're going to we, we're identifying identifying five or six of the big homeschool conferences. We're we'll putting on a workshop in Pennsylvania uh, in two months at the Pennsylvania Leadership Conference. So we want to get out that, get that out, get our message, education materials, and we want to promote again critical thinking skills in the scientific method. So, don't you think it's a common uh, repeated thing that's happening uh, that the warmists have captured just a handful of people at the top of organizations, but the rank and file, if you were to poll them, are we experiencing a climate crisis? They would say, of course not. Exactly. We saw that at the, at the NSTA conference. We've seen it at other education conferences where the teachers are just thirsty for the information we provide. Um, we've taken on this in North Carolina, one of our members there actually got uh, the scientific method included in the, the North Carolina science standards after it was removed some 30 years ago, believe it or not. Uh, we took on uh, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, came to us because of our expertise. They said, we need help going over the textbooks that are being used for science. Uh, and we put an all-hands-on-deck effort that we'd short time we did that we looked at the textbooks and through the texas public policy foundation they went and fought and we got actually had several books that were banned that were not going to be used at all because they were just awful and we had other changes that were made uh, through our recommendations so we're not just out there with some fun looking books we're actually doing something uh, in states to make a difference and that's it's really the state level where we need to make those changes with education. Uh, we'll do it state by state. Uh, it's, it's really uplifting though, to see so many teachers, they're just, they just love what we're being able to provide. We're also actually providing uh, CO2 meters at, at no cost uh, to teachers. These are $180 a piece. Uh, if they can provide a good use for it, uh, we have experiments that can be done in the lesson plans that require a CO2 meter. Uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, and do that. So yeah, we've got we've got all these tentacles going out trying to spread the good news of the gospel of more CO two, and uh, uh, it's it's again we're, it's been uplifting. It's been busy as heck. So overall, do you think over the years that you've been doing this that you're making headway and there's more people who understand the whole climate realist position? I do absolutely. I am a huge optimist. I see it. I've been saying it for. The last several years, I say, we're winning. You may not feel like it, but we are winning. I see it almost every, maybe not every day, but every week I see more evidence. And I just talk to random people uh, that, you know, people at a restaurant or in the airport or whatever. We, I'm sorry, what do you do? And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm, 
I'm an author, I'm executive director of the CO2 Coalition. Oh, and we start talking, and they're like, their eyes get wide, and they have no idea uh, about anything, what I'm telling them. But again, just almost every person I talk to, to, to a man and woman, are thirsty for this information. Um, it's just a matter of getting it out there. Uh, we're, we're silenced, we're censored, you know that, you are too, um, that they need to silence us because we make sense. And we're, we're using science. We're not, we're not flailing, waving our arms, and we're not marching in the streets. We're providing the science, and that's, that's what we do here at the CO2 Coalition. We, we stay away from the politics as best we can and stick to the science. And I think that adds uh, credibility to our efforts. Um, I, I just had lunch with some other uh, leaders of other groups, and they're, they're more activist, and there's a place for all of us here. So we stay away from the activism per se, but provide, we, we, we give them the facts, the science, and the data for them to go forward. So I have a couple examples here of how I think you've been censored, and I want to get an update on that. Uh, first off, uh, you were um, banned from LinkedIn, I think, for posting facts. And then the other one is that your uh, Inconvenient Facts app is still not available at the Apple App Store. Am I correct there? Correct. It was just removed again. Okay. Are you censored on any other platforms? Because, like, on Twitter, I think things are, from my perspective, are going well. We're not being censored. Well, we're being shadow banned for yes. sure on, yeah. on Facebook. Uh, Twitter seems to be good. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Elon. Uh, so twi Twitter is good. Uh, we're getting out there. YouTube, uh, it, it's hard to say how much we're being shadow banned or restricted. Uh, we have videos now that we're promoting. We're just... Again, we talked a little bit before about this new video effort uh, it's called the Climate Chronicles. We're trying to get that out there, uh, and we're we're trying to do more social media. In fact, I'm looking for an, uh, a third person to add to that portfolio of our staff. Uh, we're, we're bringing on uh, third-party contractors for digital marketing and digital advertising. Um, we're looking at all options to get our message out there. But I have people tell me, they said, man, I said, everywhere I go and I look up climate change, there's somebody from the CO2 coalition or they're, they're, they're quoting you or somebody or Will Happer or Patrick Moore. Uh, and it's, so we're getting the word out there. We're being more successful in outreach. Uh, we just need to do more. And it's, and I got to praise you, Tom, from the work that you're doing here. You've, uh, of course, you had quite a, if you just went down the list of our members, you have quite a few members that are fascinating and highly educated and degreed, um, some of the top, most respected scientists in the world. Uh, so, uh, but you're doing a great service with what you're doing with your podcast. Uh, thank you. I just wanted to provide an update here. I just counted by my count uh, this morning, uh, 26 people, CO2 coalition people have been on my podcast. I just have to uh, go down the list and get some more on there. So many yeah. interesting people. Yeah, it is. And you get people like Patrick Moore. Um, not every scientist can communicate on a level that the non-scientist can understand. Uh, Patrick Moore in particular is one of those that that's fa he's fascinating. He's got a story being uh, original co-founder of Greenpeace. Uh, so when he talks, people listen and respect him. Uh, the same with many of the others uh, 
in your neck of the woods. We have some of the top fire experts in the world. Uh, and uh, so, you know, whatever your subject matter is, you know, we have an economist that are top, fire experts that are the top, uh, climatologists. Uh, we're, we're completing a, a study right now on CO2 and nutrition. Uh, there's been a troubling uh, advance. People are... The, the alarmists now are starting to say, or have been for several years, that, well, because they can't deny that CO2 is in, is uh, encouraging plant growth and crop growth. Uh, that's beyond argument. It just is. Uh, what they're saying is, well, uh, we're growing more plants, but they're less nutritious. Um, and the protein, there's not as, there's not as much protein, blah, blah. And so we're doing, we this there's not been a study done. We're doing it right now. Doctor, it's led by... Dr. Will Happer and Elbrick Gletzel, who's from Paraguay. Um, the two of them are leading this. We have, some, we have a small team we put together. What's actually happening? As you increase CO2, what happens to the nutritional value of, of the corn, the wheat, the alfalfa, the, whatever it is you're growing? What's What, what happens? And so we're, we're Dr. Happer's insistent that that paper be done before we go to Wyoming in a couple of weeks. Uh, so we'll have a couple of new papers that are coming out that are important. One on Wyoming and this other one on uh, uh, CO2 and nutrition. I think it's, it'll be hugely impactful for us to say, not only is, is CO2 driving plant growth, uh, we're getting uh, more of it and it's still nutritious. So you uh, must be uh, keeping really busy personally doing all this stuff, running this organization and the papers and 300 interviews last year and six today. Is that right? Yeah. Um, we're being driven. Yes. Yeah. So it, it's, uh, and I know you're the same way. I, I love talking to people. I love communicating. And that's, that's, you know, take your strengths and build on those. So yeah. Am I busy? Heck yeah. Uh, I don't think I've had a day off in a couple of years, but I love doing what I'm doing. I worked all this past weekend uh, on this Wyoming paper. Uh, it's what I love to do. And I get I get a real charge out of when you finally get this together. It's a great feeling. Uh, the, the, especially we're going to be, we'll, we'll be talking, we're taking a coal tour of the largest coal mine in the world, uh, and then traveling on one day and then traveling to, a large coal generating electricity facility for a field trip there. Uh, that evening, we're, we're going to be talking to the Gillette Community College. And this will be uh, Will Happer and, and Byron Sapoyan and myself. Uh, then we travel. We're having a press conference in the Capitol Rotunda. And I can't tell you everything we're doing that day. Uh, we'll end up the next day, University of Wyoming at Laramie, uh, where the uh, Turning Point USA student chapter there is hosting us, where we'll give a, an hour-long presentation. Uh, and uh, I understand they like Jimmy John's subs, so we'll be we'll be the, to, to draw the students in. You know, we'll, we'll be providing a free lunch, and I just shipped them uh, a full box of forty of my new book as a free freebie to get more people to come out. Uh, so yeah, we're keeping busy. Uh, it's. It's been fun. No, it sounds like you have a close relationship with Will Happer. I see he did an excellent uh, forward to your book. I, I'm loving the uh, the straight talk in there. Yeah, Will is the most I have the utmost respect for Will. He's a true gentleman, 
and he's he, he amazes me when we talk. Just as an example, I think it was a year ago, I told him, uh, I said, you know, it's, I forget exactly how it came up. I said, well, you know, I think it was, it might have been two years ago, I said, I'm rereading Atlas Shrugged. And I said, it's amazing. I said, as I'm reading this, things in America are actually doing what's happening now, what was in Atlas Shrugged. And he said, oh, Greg, that's what a coincidence. I'm also reading Atlas Shrugged. I'm reading it in the original Russian version, though. Who reads Atlas Shrugged in Russian? Will Happer does. And uh, that's, uh, he's, he comes up, uh, I don't know where he's, and his energy is boundless. Uh, he just spent uh, 10 days in Paraguay uh, with Albert Gletschel. They're fighting back against uh, net zero uh, in Paraguay. And in fact, after his visit, uh, they went, the Paraguayan delegation voted against, voted against the resolution at the COP28 meeting. And we'd like to think he had something to do with that. He spent two day, 10 days touring Australia speaking uh, several months ago uh, in five cities across Australia. And uh, it's, he's, he's tireless, uh, but, but he's, he's a true scientist, scholar, and a gentleman in the old sense of the word. Yeah, very, very impressive guy. So uh, we're coming up maybe on 45 minutes or so. Do you have any other points you'd like to make before I let you go to all your other interviews? Well, we've got uh, the book itself, a very convenient warming. Uh, if you if you can buy it directly from my website, it just went up available on Facebook a couple of days ago. The website I have is convenientwarming.com, convenientwarming.com. Uh, to learn more about the CO2 Coalition, go to co2coalition.org. And uh, go to the our educational materials. I'm going to throw a lot of things out here, but the education materials, if you want to look at, at that, it's uh, co2learningcenter.com, co2learningcenter.com. You can order our uh, three. We've got two more new books coming out. Uh, the book that the kids really like is called Simon the Solar Powered Cat. Uh, it's about a cat. And it's about photosynthesis. And it's it's fascinating. The kids just love it. And again, there are lesson plans that go along with that. Very good. All right. I will let you go. But thanks again, Gregory Wrightstone. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you very much. Bye.